Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. Good morning. I want to begin here with a question, and the question is this, what role do you think Christians should play in trying to influence the culture for good? Is there a part that we as the church should play when it comes to maybe molding the values or the morals of our society, or is this an area in which we really shouldn't be involved? I'd like to suggest here today that God's ways of doing things, I am convinced, based on what's taught in the pages of the Bible, in other words, I call those God's ways, I believe it's the Word of God, God's ways of doing things are the best, that that we as individuals and as a society will prosper if we do things God's way. You know, if we follow what God says is good and right and we avoid things that God says are are not things we should be involved with. And so we look at our society around us and we realize that they're on a different path many times, but I think we'd all agree that that life is better if people don't lie, if they don't steal, if they don't cheat, if they don't commit adultery, if they love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, if they love their neighbor as themselves. If we follow these things, that life would be better for us as individuals and as a society. And, and, and I think we know this, and yet we look at the culture. And oftentimes there's a gap there. This way of living has been called in the Old Testament frequently the path of life or the way of life or the way of righteousness. It's almost like the, the, the faith journey is viewed like a, a path that you walk along and you want to stay on the path. In Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 28, we read, there is life in the path of righteousness, but another path leads to death. If you're walking along the path, the right path, it says it's a life-giving thing. And of course, God put before the Israelites many times in the Old Testament, I'm giving you life or death. You choose my way, it's the way of life. If you choose this way, it's the way of death. This phrase, there's life in the path of righteousness, can be translated a little differently. W.D. Rayburn translates it this way, the person who follows the way that is right will have life. And he quotes from the French common language version of the Bible, life is found wherever right living is practice. We care about our society, we care about our country, we care about our loved ones. And we should care even about our own lives here. But how do we, how do we make a positive contribution? How do, how do we affect things for good? When I was in my late teenage years and early 20s, the, the approach we took was to do rallies. And so I was part of a rally in, in New York City, Madison Square Garden. Made the national news. I was part of a rally in Columbus, Ohio, and, and one down in uh, Gainesville, Florida. I was part of rallies in... Morgantown, West Virginia, and, and I just think sometimes rallies can get an issue out there, but I'm not sure what real change took place. I mean, is the, is the best way to impact change in our society to just confront it in these ways? 
And we live in a world today in which nobody wants to listen to anyone anyway. You know, I think there is a, a sincere effort to silence the viewpoints of Christians in particular. And so is the best way to confront our society to preach to it? I don't think so. Today we're going to continue our series titled Relevant. We're asking the question, is the church relevant? And I'm convinced the answer is yes, otherwise I'd be in a different field of work. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think that the church had really something profound to offer the world in which we live. First week of this series, I talked about the fact we have a message that can change the world one life at a time. As people put their trust in Jesus Christ, their lives are transformed. It's a miraculous change that takes place, a rebirth. And then the second week of this series, I have this point, be the church you want the church to be, but I was primarily talking about the idea that the church is a family, and, and maybe it's the family that some of us never had, that I think we can, we can really be a family with brothers and sisters in Christ. And then last week, I talked about how Christians over the ages have really made a contribution in loving outside the doors. My takeaway is God invites us inside so we can love those outside. But today I want to talk about the role of the church to influence our society for good. How do we make a difference? And I'd like to suggest today that the best way we can do it is this. Here's my takeaway. We can impact our world by living differently than the world. I think we impact our world most by living differently than the world, that people see us and they say, oh, you're a Christian. I see there's something different about you. The way we live our lives is somehow different because we're not going to win the hearts of people by, by speaking more and preaching more, but when they see our lives. Now, I need to define a term here because I'm going to be using it a lot, but the term is the world. Again, my takeaway, we can impact our world by living diff differently than the world. What do I mean by world? I'm not talking about the planet. And I'm also not talking about, and the New Testament isn't talking about when it uses the term, people in general. You know, all the people of the world. That's not what it's talking about either. When the term is used in the Bible about the world, when it says, don't be conformed to this world, Paul wrote, it's talking about a particular system that is contrary to God and His ways. We're told as Christians that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. There's a, there's a system out there that's kind of contrary to God, a very war, real worldly system. John talked about it in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. He said, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. Now, let me stop for a moment, but that's a very strong statement. If anyone loves the world, now again, we're not talking about the planet. We're talking about this system that's contrary to God, and, and, and if we're tied in with that, if we love that, there is not the capacity to love God. We're faced with a decision, a choice. Where do we align ourselves with the world in which we live and all of its beliefs and morals and ideas, philosophies, or do we align ourselves with Christ? Don't love the world or the things that belong to the world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them for everything that belongs to the world. The lust or the passions of the flesh, you know, the things we just go after with our flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will will remain 
forever. Now, my Bible study, I have a study Bible, I'm sorry, has a little footnote there by the word world, and this is how they translate it. The world is the organized satanic system that's opposed to God and hostile to Jesus and his followers. It also refers to the non-Christian culture, including governments, educational systems, and businesses. You see, according to the New Testament, the ruler of this world, not the planet, the ruler of this world is Satan. He's called the ruler of this world. And that might surprise some of you because you think, wait, isn't God sovereign over all? Of course God is sovereign over all, but I believe that when Adam and Eve said no to God, by default, that Satan was given the right to carry on with the world, to run the various things of the world, the institutions of the world to accomplish his purposes, government, education, entertainment, the list goes on and on, the financial systems of the world, the devil is at work in these things, trying to accomplish his purposes, and it's really contrary to Christ and how we would live. And so what this means is that as Christians, we have an adversarial relationship with this world. And Jesus even said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. You know, they hated me. They're going to hate you as well. We're different. We're different. But I think that difference can make all the difference in the world. But how do we impact the world then? Well, I think it has to do more with being than it has to do with speaking. It has to do with being as Christians. We can illustrate to the world what it means to be a Christian. And people can see the difference, and it's something that I think that, that the world would want. Now, today we're going to look at a couple illustrations or word pictures that Jesus used to illustrate the influence that we're supposed to have on the world, how we affect change in our world, how we make a difference in the world. He used a couple different word pictures, and I know that these are going to be familiar to some of you, but I hope that you'll see it through a different lens and realize really what the heart of what he's trying to say. The verses we're going to be looking at are Matthew 5, 13 through 16, and, and these verses find themselves in a larger passage of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. It covers uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. That's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the words we're going to look at today come near the beginning of that, and I think it's important that they come near the beginning of that. Jesus was with his disciples, and a huge crowd had gathered to hear him teach. And so we read that Jesus went up on this mountain. Now, it wasn't a real tall mountain. It's kind of like the mountains of West Virginia, except without, it didn't have all the trees like our mountains do. He went up on this mountain. He stood at the top about 20 years ago. I was in Israel, and I stood where they say Jesus delivered this sermon on the mount. It's a natural amphitheater. He stood up there teaching the crowd, and, and, and it just files down. It's just a beautiful amphitheater, and Jesus began to teach the people. Uh, before it says he did that, though, it does make the point to say his disciples came and sat down around him, and then Jesus began to speak to them. And I think that's a, a, an important point here, that Jesus here was addressing his comments to disciples or followers of Jesus. You know, when I do talks on the weekends, some of the talks are not aimed particularly toward Christians or believers. Some of the talks I do are aimed to try to persuade people to put their trust in Christ. I just want to make a case for the fact we need a Savior, and it's Jesus. 
put your trust in Jesus Christ, but most of the talks I do relate to, well, this is what it should be like for Christians. And this one is focusing on what, what should our lives be like as Christians? What should it look like? And how do we impact this world? Now, I'm going to read these verses, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, and as I do, I want to ask a question for you to be listening for the answer. The question is this, if we want to bring about change in our culture, is it about what we say, is it about what we do, or is it about what we are? Is it about what the words we say, like the, the, the preach to the culture, is, is it about the things we do, or is it about what we are? And it is a little bit of a combination of the both of a couple of these, if not all three, but it's primarily one. So let's read these verses, beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled out on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So, the two pictures here are salt and light, and both of those things influence the environment in which they're placed. You add salt to the food, or you surround maybe that meat in a, in a bunch of salt. It influences that, so it preserves the meat. But it influences light is the same. You introduce light into a dark room, and it casts out the darkness. So the subject matter here is influencing the world by being light and by being salt. So what is it? What we say? Is it what we do, what we are? Well, the, the doing is there. He does talk about the fact that people see our good deeds. And normally when I read that phrase, good deeds, I, I've thought that Jesus was talking about when people see that we love other people, we do good, that they'll be one to Christ. But that phrase, good deeds, is a lot broader than that. And I don't believe that that's the main issue. The good deeds are a byproduct of something else. It has to do with what we are. Now, it's not a battle for words. And that's how I think Christians in the past have tried to confront their, their society. We yell at them. We preach at them. We point at them. You say, you're a wicked person. You know, we look at various things. And, 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 and sermons in churches for decades have been a bunch of sermons about don't do this and don't do that, all about preaching against the things of the society, but, but this passage doesn't say anything about that. It's not that our words, of course, can't impact people. My first talk in this series was that this good news of Christ changes lives, but we're talking here about preaching at the society. Does that work? I don't, I don't think so. Now, of course, these days, people try to preach through social media. So you watch the posts. I won't ask you to raise your hand, although I'm tempted to. If you have a position about something and you see somebody's rant, are any of you persuaded? I mean, is there a single, don't raise your hand because I don't want you to be the only one. Oh yeah, I'm persuaded. I see these posts. 
you know, people saying things they, they maybe wouldn't even say in person. That's the thing about, of course, the anonymity here. But you, know, you can say a bunch of things and just dump it out there. You can cast it out there. It's not impacting people. The only thing that I think happens when we try to win the battles that way is that people think less of you. The only thing that happens is when you do want to tell them about Jesus, they'll discount what you have to say because they've discounted all this other stuff that you've been posting. I don't think that's the way to do it. Now, good works, again, factors in, but as we're going to see, I'm going to define this in a little bit. It's bigger. It's not just about doing kind things for people. The main point that Jesus is making in this section is we are salt, we are light. It's what you are. And he's, he's not even saying you become that. He's looking at his disciples. You are the salt of the world, whether you like it or not. You are the light. So what's the issue here that he's confronting about salt and light? Well, he's saying that there's some things that can hinder our effectiveness as salt. There are things that could dim the brightness of our light. It can diminish what we are if we're doing certain things. Here's how I would apply what Jesus is saying. If we make compromises with the world and don't maintain our distinctiveness, I think that's the issue, maintaining our distinctiveness, through the way we live, or we try to hide the fact we're Christians, again, usually through the way we live, and we don't just humbly but boldly live out our faith, we will lose our impact. Now, let's look at these analogies a little bit more closely. Matthew 5, 13 again. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on men. It says it's not good for anything anymore if salt loses its flavor. It's not good for anything. In other words, it would no longer have an impact in the environment which it's placed. If salt has no saltiness to it, it's not going to impact the food in a positive way anyway. Same thing with light. But if we're different, if we live differently. Now, I think it's important to mention that from a, just a strictly scientific perspective, salt never loses its flavor. And some people have actually criticized Jesus here. They said, well, Jesus didn't know. He made a mistake. No, Jesus didn't make a mistake here. But salt doesn't lose its flavor. If you had a jar of salt with the lid off, it would be every bit as salty on day 1,000 or 10,000 as it was on day one. Salt does not lose its flavor. Yet Jesus said, if salt loses its flavor. So it looks like a contradiction or it looks like a mistake. Well, there are a few different explanations for this. Number one is we're going to see in a little bit that th this definition loses its flavor. Is it maybe a mistranslation. It should be called something else. The idea is if it, if it gets corrupted, if it gets ruined. Uh, second, some have suggested that maybe the issue, the type of salt that we're dealing with here, is fertilizer salts. That the Jewish listeners would have thought of that. And fertilizer, of course, does lose its, its strength over time. You have a bag of fertilizer for 10 years, don't bother using it. It's, it's, it's like dust. And that could be the case, and that does fit the illustration. It, it, the point is, of course, if you lose your potency for whatever reason, 
And I'd like to suggest the reason is impurities in our lives, but we won't have effect anymore. But I think what this is really talking about is the type of salt that the people in Israel were familiar with in Jesus' day. The, the salt wasn't pure. And to me, this is the main issue with the salt, that we need to maintain our purity, that we don't become like the world, that we maintain our distinctiveness. D.A. Carson, quoting Dietrich in the book Salt, wrote, strictly speaking, salt cannot lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride is a stable compound. But most salt in the ancient world derived from salt marshes or the like rather than by evaporation of salt water and therefore contain many impurities. The actual salt being more soluble than the impurities could be leached out, leaving a residue so dilute it was of little worth. In modern Israel, savorless salt is still said to be scattered on the soil of flat roofs. This helps harden the soil and prevent leaks. And since the roofs serve as playgrounds and places for public gathering, the salt is still being trodden under. He's talking about salt that has a bunch of imperfections in it. Somehow the, the salty part left, and now you're left with all these impurities in it. But what was Jesus meaning with the salt anyway? What was the primary application of salt that he was dealing with here? Well, when we think of salt, we think of food. You know, you think of the salt shaker. I think we have a, a world that's obsessed with salt, and I'm, I'm guilty. I love salt. I just like salt. It's, it's not good. Thankfully, I don't have high blood pressure. But I like salt, pickles, sauerkraut, salty things. I just like salt. I put it on. I usually taste now the food first. I was tired of that criticism. Putting on salt before you. But I love salt. It does enhance the flavor of the food. And so we think, well, maybe that's it. And people have said, we're to be like salt. It makes people thirsty for God. Well, that could be the case. But most scholars think it's, it's something else. That the idea here is preservation. That mostly the idea, they would have been familiar with using salt as a preservative. And so now we're talking about a salt that maybe has been corrupted by impurities that you use to try to preserve things, but it no longer can serve that purpose. Now, a scholar by the name of L. Morris combines the ideas, although he leans toward the preservation side. He says, Jesus is apparently thinking of the function of salt as a preservative, as an enemy of decay. And, he says, as giving taste to food, what is good in our society, his followers keep wholesome. In other words, if something's good, we, we want to preserve it. What is corrupt, they oppose. They penetrate society for good and act as a kind of moral antiseptic. And they give a tang to life, like salt to a dish of food. Again, if we are impure, we lose our effectiveness. If we're too much like the world, the environment we're trying to reach, we won't be able to impact it. A scholar by the name of Bloomberg puts it this way. He says, losing its saltiness, and this gets to that definition I mentioned earlier, losing its saltiness reads more literally, literally can't say the word, is defiled. It's defiled. The salt, if the salt gets defiled, he says that's what the issue is. And this kind of solves the problem then of the salt losing its flavor. He goes on to say, this is not the scientifically impossible notion of salt becoming flavorless, but rather 
The common problem in the ancient world of salt being mixed with various impure substances and therefore becoming worthless as a preservative. And I think this is the issue. This is the exact message, by the way, that was given to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, which I think is a reference to the, perhaps the modern-day church. The church of Laodicea, they were described in terms of water. Jesus said about them, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm, and therefore I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, just like the salt is tossed out. It's the same idea. Hot water was good for cooking. Cold water was good for drinking. But back then, this, this lukewarm water, which wasn't prepared like our water is chlorinated and stuff, it was horrible. You just spit it out. I can't, I can't drink it. I don't, can't use it for anything. And we lose our effect. Taking back to, going back to my takeaway, we can impact our world by living differently than the world. Now, let's talk briefly about the light analogy, though, because it says we are light, lights in the world. And therefore, it says don't hide the light. Don't hide the light. What does it mean to hide the light? Well, I think it could have the idea that sometimes Christians don't want anyone to know. And I know I've been that place before. I just haven't wanted to raise my hand. I'm a Christian. But I don't think, again, that's the main idea. I think the main idea here is when a Christian walks in darkness. Again, 1 John talked a lot about that. If we claim to be in the light, I'm in the light, but we walk in the darkness, we're lying. It's possible for a Christian to walk in the way of darkness. This was a concept that Jewish people would have been very familiar with, the idea of walking in darkness versus walking in the light. And I think that when we walk in a certain way in the darkness, then we become dark so people can't tell. That's how you hide your light. People can't tell, are you light or darkness? I can't tell by the way you're living your life. Now, you can't ever fully hide the fact you're a Christian. And all of us are going to, by the way, blow it in many ways. We're going to make lots of mistakes. None of us are going to be perfect here. But your light's going to shine through. Even when you do things that aren't good, your light will shine through. People will see it. And I think Jesus was getting that at that in Matthew 5, 14, when he said, you're the light of the world. And then he said, a, a city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. That phrase looks like it's misplaced. Why is he all of a sudden talking about a city on a hill that can't be hidden? You know? Once again, though, when I, when I was in Israel, on one of my trips there, we stood again on that place, and at one point, our guide, who in this case was not a Christian, he said up front, I'm not a Christian and don't try to make me one. He was tired of Christian groups coming in trying to share Christ with him. But at one point, he pointed to a hill. We were on this exact passage. He pointed to a hill. He said, that's the city on a hill. He said, that's not a city on a hill, that's the city on the hill. That's the one Jesus was talking about. You can see that city from anywhere. In, in many ways, we can't hide the fact we're Christians. You can't. The Spirit of God lives in you. You just, you're different. Now, we might, I think we could try. But people oftentimes will see the difference. They should know the difference. Continue on verse 15 again. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. That would be foolish to try to hide it. But rather on a lampstand, and he gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. He's basically saying shine brightly. Don't let anything diminish 
hide or whatever the fact that you are the light of the world. And again, I think this comes back to the idea of purity. It comes back to the idea of living in such a way that there aren't things in our lives that diminish the brightness of our shine. Now, I mentioned earlier that the passage says that if you light, live this way and you're the light of the world, people will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And I said it's, it's bigger than the idea of just doing good deeds or kindness for people. No, the, the good deeds here relates to everything you do be, as a Christian that demonstrates you're a Christian. It's kindness, it's integrity, working hard, being a good person, being someone who helps out with a need over here, a person who, who doesn't lie and, and doesn't steal and a variety of different things. It's this broad idea that people will see and look at you and say, you're kind of a good person. I mean, that's how they'll, they'll term it. Dr. Jameson puts it this way, Christians being the light of the world, instead of hiding their light, are so to hold it forth before men that they may see what a life the disciples of Christ lead. That's what it means to let your light shine. They say, when they look at you, they say, you're a disciple, I can tell by the way you're living your life. But it goes back to this takeaway, we can impact our world by living differently than the world. So, we're salt. Don't let anything corrupt you. We're light. Don't do things that are of the darkness, that fit in the category of the darkness. Do things that represent the light. Don't let anything diminish the light. Now, there's one verse in the Bible that I think summarizes everything I said last week and everything this week. One, one verse. It's James 1.27 where we read pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father. Stop for a moment, but we're talking about purity of salt, right? Pure light shining. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this. Two things, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to love people. In other words, as I talked about last week, and keep oneself unstained by the world. Don't allow yourself to be corrupted because we can impact the world by living differently. See, the world that's controlled by the devil, the world has different morals than Christians have. They have different ideas about what's right and wrong there. They have different values. You know, they value money and possessions, fame, beauty, variety of things. They, they have different beliefs. Whenever the beliefs of this world run contrary to what I've come to understand is true from the Bible, I choose the Bible. They have different practices. They have different enjoyments. There are certain things that we shouldn't enjoy as Christians. What this is a call for is to live unashamedly different. Purity, holiness, love, walking in step with the Holy Spirit along the way. And by the way, this is, I think, how we're able to live differently. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of Christ lives in you, and He's, trying, he's leading you along the way. You say yes to Him. He's the one that is able to empower us. And in Galatians 5, 19 to 23, and I want to close with this, but the contrast between the two lifestyles, the life of the world and the life of the Christian are put on display. And the secret, the difference, of course, is walking in step with God's Spirit who lives in us. In Galatians 5, 19 to 23, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, Selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I tell you about these 
things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against those things there is no law. We're going to sing at this time a song for you called No One But You. And it's really just a song that focuses on really the most important thing. My talk here today is not about moralism, like just fix up your life. I really want to encourage you to stay connected to Christ like a vine in the branches, Jesus said, because then you'll bear good fruit. The fruit of your life is a reflection of a relationship with Christ, and that's reflected in this song. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.